We're in the middle of Hydrogen Week in the UK. It's the first ever run to promote the use of hydrogen and the part that it will play in achieving net zero. I've got the pleasure of interviewing Derek Radburn from National Gas. He is a senior hydrogen development engineer and he's part of the hydrogen programme team responsible for delivering hydrogen projects throughout the UK. Thanks, Andrew, for having me today. Yeah, so like you say, National Gas is a new entity, but we still have the same vision in, in hydrogen as, as we did when we were part of National Grid Gas Transmission. So we're we're involved in, in the hydrogen space. So, so we're trying to explore how that we can utilise the gas networks that we have today to transport hydrogen around the country to serve the needs of the consumers in the future. So we're exploring that through several ways really. So we've got sort of two broad areas that we're considering what we need to do with hydrogen. So looking at how can we transition to use hydrogen, what does that route look like? But also within the national gas assets, how can they handle hydrogen as well? So in terms of what we're doing there, we've got a real major project that we're embarking on at the moment called Project Union. And that is looking at how we can use hydrogen on our existing natural transmission system. So that is a project that's looking to develop a national hydrogen backbone in the UK. And that will consist of approximately 2,000 kilometres worth of hydrogen pipeline. That will be primarily repurposed pipeline where from our existing methane network, and it represents about 25% of the, the methane network that we've got at the moment. So we're looking to repurpose as much as possible, primarily because it's going to have greater benefits in terms of cost savings, as well as the environmental benefits that it brings from repurposing our existing assets too. So we see it as being approximately 20% from existing estimates cheaper by repurpose, 20% uh, of the cost of new build, sorry, by repurposing and we can drive environmental benefits from avoiding having to go out and lay new pipelines across the countryside and all the challenges that that may bring as well. So we've got Project Union looking at the how, how we can transition, that's a big portfolio of work. But we've also then got a question around, can our assets handle hydrogen as well? And we've got a whole host of work looking at how we can develop processes to, to understand how we can understand that. So we've got a project called Future Grid, which is taking place in, in Cumbria. And that is effectively an offline test facility using some old decommissioned assets that have seen live on our national transmission system already. And that's been moved up to this test facility, assembled in a test rig and made a, a mini network up there. And that's going to then be looking at how does hydrogen impact our assets that have already seen service. So we're going to test that through various blends of hydrogen from 2% up to 20% and then through to 100% hydrogen to understand what is the impact of, of hydrogen on, on our assets so that we can have confidence that when we come to repurpose them, they are fit for purpose. And the challenges, as I understand them, relate to not just the pressure that hydrogen will be utilised at, but also the size of the molecule is so small that it's hard to contain. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so hydrogen is the sort of the smallest and lightest element that we know of. So it does have different properties to, to the methane gas that we transport at the moment. So methane in itself has its own hazardous substance. It's a hazardous substance by itself and it has its own challenges. So as a company, we're well versed with understanding how we can mitigate the risks of transporting hazardous gases through pipelines. But like you say, hydrogen, it has different properties. It is smaller, so it has around a third of the energy density of methane. So we need to transport the equivalent energy, we'd need to move three times as much of it. So that then gives slightly different operating parameters that we might need to look at for a future hydrogen network. And in terms of, you mentioned there about hydrogen escaping and leaking because it's a smaller molecule, 
And that's exactly one of the things that we are looking at through some of our future grid activities that Don mentioned. So as well as the test facility where we've got a, a mini network set up, we also there have a lot of standalone test rigs as well. So these are looking at things like permeation through the materials. We're looking at leak tests through the various things like flanges and the various joints that we might have on the network. We're also doing things like fatigue cycling. So we've got a fatigue rig set up, which is effectively decommissioned assets. So we've already seen 30 years worth of gas passed through it and welded sections of that together using historical wild techniques and as well as the modern techniques to try and replicate what we have on the network and then we're pressure cycling that to be able to understand how does hydrogen impact on the fatigue of that material too so we're actually doing quite a lot of activities and understanding what the impact of hydrogen is and how that physical difference of hydrogen compared to methane impacts our assets and then we can compare the two and understand what do we need to then do to mitigate any differences if they present a higher risk. So we've got that future grid activity going on as well as some of the wider innovation work too which is covering the physical differences between hydrogen and methane so if we need to do any material assessments, if we need to do any hazardous area assessments to determine how does that look in terms of what equipment can we have close to the various like vents and, and flanges and things like that so we've got a lot of activities ongoing. The obvious aspect that we come across quite a lot is the impact or the restrictions that may need to be in place around the assets, whether they're transmission or distribution pipelines, which are commonly in highways, but also across private land, frequently agricultural land where you've got big kit that can pose a hazard. You talk about methane being a hazardous product, as is hydrogen. Does it make any difference when it comes to assets, pipelines over private land, or the same restrictions are likely to need to apply? As part of the work that we are undertaking, we're trying to understand if there are different risks and if there are any additional measures we would need to take. Like I mentioned through Project Union, we're primarily trying to repurpose our assets where possible to avoid having to lay new pipelines, but we may need to lay new pipelines as well. So existing pipelines, they're already in the ground and in service, so they already have the levels of protection that the methane network calls for. If our analysis and the work that we're doing determines that we would need to put any additional protection in, any concrete over the top, any matting, any pads, anything like that that needs to go over the top in terms of protection measure, we would then put that in place as well. But at the moment, we haven't really got to the point where we could say, yes, hydrogen needs additional pipeline protection or, or no, it doesn't. But we are sort of working through that at the moment in terms of what additional measures may need to take place through the risk assessments that we're taking place at the moment. And you talked about blending earlier, and I think there are already blending trials in place, Keele University being one example. And I can see that the transition that we're going to experience is going to involve blending through to presumably a pure network of hydrogen at some point. When do you think that point might be? Our timelines for blending at the moment, they start around 2025, where we envisage that we could on our network have a 2% blend within the network. So that's, it sounds like quite a low volume, but it's, I suppose, 2% in terms of a national transmission system is a lot of hydrogen still to come onto the network. So it'll be 2% from 2025 is a, an ambition in our blending timeline at the moment. And then increasing through to 20%, which would be sort of higher level limit in terms of blending that we envisage. The 20% then allows sort of domestic consumers, if it travels down into a domestic setting, to be safe to use at a 20% level. And then we have a, through Project Union, then plans that that's the 100% network 
the hydrogen that we would envisage. But yeah, blending would actually be part of that journey to encourage hydrogen economies to form. And that's probably one of the very first steps that can really help kickstart the economy there. There's a good question there really about where this hydrogen might be used. You talk about the domestic market out there. There's clearly a commercial industrial market. There's a transportation market, a heating market. Where's the biggest uptake going to happen and when? And where from National Gas's priority in terms of focusing on the transmission network, do you think it's going to get used the soonest? I think you covered quite a few of the sectors that we envisage it being used in just there. So in terms of where it can be used, we're seeing hydrogen being able to offer a replacement for natural gas across various different uses. So it's part of a whole energy system that we're viewing hydrogen as playing a part. There's lots of natural gas being used at the moment. In terms of, sort of if you compare the gas networks and the electricity networks, we have about three times as much energy per year go through the gas network as compared the, to the electricity network. So we've got a lot of energy to decarbonise through those gas networks. And all of those sectors that you've picked up are ones that we envisage using hydrogen. So we have Project Union, which is connecting up the industrial clusters. But it doesn't just mean that we're only focusing on those people within that industrial cluster zone. By having a hydrogen backbone through Project Union, that then allows people outside of the clusters to be able to have access to hydrogen as well. So those people who are on the route of hydrogen, also through the distribution network works as well. So it has got all all of the various sectors covered. So we can cover the industrial sectors. So where there's not a natural electrification route to decarbonisation for those industrial consumers, hydrogen can be an option for them as well. And we're trying to really give people choice that hydrogen is out there to use as an industrial process as well to decarbonise. The power sector is, is another large sector that is going to play a big part within hydrogen. The electricity grid have got a target to decarbonise by 20 2035. There's a lot of gas-fired power stations currently on on the network as well. And we see that there could be a role for hydrogen to play a part in enabling that decarbonised electricity system as well through using hydrogen in power stations. And that again, that needs that that whole systems and joined-up energy approach to across gas and electricity to determine where those can be deployed. So that's some big industrial and power players. There's also transport options for hydrogen as well. So transport is a really good sector that can can use hydrogen so we've got options for like heavy goods vehicles long distance passenger transport the heavy construction machines that are in operation as well so these are sort of areas where the type of duty and the operating environment that those vehicles operate in don't necessarily lend itself easily to a battery electric vehicle so people like jcb are looking at industrial internal combustion engines using hydrogen for some of their large machines because of the type of duty that they have the environment they operate in doesn't really lend themselves to using even a hydrogen fuel cell let alone a battery fuel cell but they also have battery electric machines as well for the environments where it suits so again it is suiting the environment to the technology that's available and there's a big potential market depending on government policy decisions for for domestic heat so subject to a government decision in 2026 allowing domestic heat to have hydrogen in the mix that could be another potentially large market there and in the same way that the other sectors have got choice as well, the domestic settings also have a lot of choice there. So again, this will be determined by the needs of that domestic setting about whether they can use hydrogen or whether they can have other options. So it's part of the choice that a consumer has, whether hydrogen is part of that mix as well. 
the energy mix is going to be fundamental, isn't it? Because I think there's no single silver bullet here. We talk about hydrogen being an option for transport and an option for heating. You've got batteries as the alternatives. You've got air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps. Where do you see the balance? You know, is hydrogen going to take the lion's share of all of this, do you think? I know this is a long time into the future, but where do you see the balance being between the use of hydrogen versus other alternatives? I think it's quite hard to really predict where it might land it off into the future and I don't think that we have a crystal ball to say it will be a certain percentage one way or the other. I think it really depends on that individual consumer's requirement. If we think of like in a domestic heat setting, someone who has a property suitable for a heat pump, that might be the best and greatest option for them because they can use that to, and it's a decarbonised solution and it's fit for their purpose. Whereas other people may not have a property that is suitable for that at this point in time without some other grades and other costs associated with that. So I think it depends on that whole system cost when we think of the energy for that consumer and, and what fits their particular circumstance, taking into account their local environment, where they can get access to the energy from, and as well as not just their immediate site and property technology considerations, but also the infrastructure around it too. There may be significant upgrades needed on either a gas or electricity network needed for there, and that's going to have a cost impact for that particular energy source in that zone as well. So it's really taking that whole system to understand. So we probably can't really say that hydrogen can be a lion's share or, or heat pumps are going to have the lion's share. It's going to be very individualised to that particular consumer. Well, I guess part of it will be led by what's most cost effective and the cost effectiveness of hydrogen, I expect is quite a big question at the moment. I realise national gas are very much focused on transportation, not generation. But in your view, how cost effective is hydrogen today and what's going to change that in the future? Like I mentioned just then, in terms of the cost effectiveness, it depends on each user's circumstance and having an energy source that they have that meets their requirements. So taking into account all those sort of upgrades or modifications that they may need. But if we sort of take it away from that individual level as well, so in terms of an overall system cost level, there's quite a few studies that have taken place which show that with hydrogen in the mix, we can have a, a reduced overall cost to the system. So there's A3 studies and, and Guidehouse have both done independent studies looking at this and they have savings ranging from 13 to 38 billion respectively on that whole system cost to meet net zero requirements. And that's sort of using hydrogen as like a long duration energy storage in that particular mix. So in terms of where we stand today with hydrogen costs, I think by generating that hydrogen economy over the next few years, initially through blending, that's a real good way to kickstart the economy and get the production going. That can then sort of drive a market and give that competition that allows future hydrogen costs to come down as well. So through that competitive market, the innovation that we'll see, that can then start to help drive those costs down. I think we've seen similar things in, in other sectors too. So if you look at the renewable wind power sector, that's went from a, a very low level through the 90s and, and early 2000s. And it's really ramped up to, I think the total generating capacity for, for renewables is, is, is about 41, 42% at the moment. So it's got a, quite a, a big share of the, the generating capacity through renewables. And that's came about in quite a quick manner. And the associated costs of that have come down over that period too so in the offshore wind world it's contracts of difference that have really encouraged the competition and have brought the price down over the last 10-15 years 
Do you think we need to see the same CFD structure in the hydrogen world to be able to achieve the same thing? I think, yeah, in terms of what environment we operate in, in terms of that commercial environment, that's something that should certainly be explored. Some of the activities that we are undertaking in terms of the commercial frameworks and the, the regulatory environments that we operate in, we're feeding into a lot of those discussions at the, at the moment in terms of how the future frameworks and, and markets should look like. So we are feeding into that. As an advisor to the industry, we're providing a lot of evidence points through the work that we do. So yeah, they should certainly be part of the options that we consider. And, and the work that we're doing feeding into that can help inform the best way that we can drive those costs down through the commercial arrangements that we can put in place. So then just moving on a little bit, we're quite involved in various hydrogen related projects, the East Coast Cluster, which I know National Grass are part of as well. I'm conscious that we talk about hydrogen, but there's all sorts of different types of hydrogen depending on where it's derived from. Could you use perhaps the East Coast Cluster as an example, just to explain actually what the impact is of the different types of hydrogen are and how they're used and, and what that means for National Gas? Yeah, so National Gas, we're a gas transmission company and we can accept hydrogen that's produced in any manner really. So if we think of how hydrogen can be produced, it can be produced in, in what's termed a, a grey hydrogen where that is using high temperature steam to split methane into its constituent parts and that does give off CO2 and the grey nature of that means that it, the CO2 is not captured so that is therefore not a low carbon source of, of hydrogen. That is primarily the process that's used at the moment within the industrial settings to generate hydrogen, generally produced near where it's required and can be used within those industrial processes. In terms of the East Coast cluster that you have mentioned there that we're involved in alongside Caden and Northern Gas Networks and others as well is that we have an option for blue hydrogen which is the same process but capturing then the, the CO2 that comes off and storing that either in some offshore storage or, or using it in another industrial process where that might be required so that then turns it from a CO2 emitting source of hydrogen into a, a lower carbon source of hydrogen where we can capture the majority of that hydrogen and store it in some form of underground storage or other storage medium. We also have green hydrogen as well, which is then hydrogen made from renewable electricity. So this is then using water as an input and using electricity to split that into its parts. So you then end up with hydrogen and oxygen. You split the hydrogen atoms off and then you take them away, but there's no CO2 to capture with that particular method. And therefore it's a green solution and a low carbon source of hydrogen. And as a gas network, we can then accept any type of hydrogen, but in order to meet the net zero requirements of the country, we really need to focus on the low carbon sources of hydrogen. There are other sources as well. We can, we can take hydrogen derived from nuclear power as well, so generate from the electricity that the nuclear power generator can produce as well, and, and that is, a, again, a low carbon form of hydrogen. I think it's a pink and the green are the optimum ones to go for, aren't they, as I understand it. The challenge, though, is the amount of energy it takes to produce a hydrogen in the first place is perhaps more than the energy that you get out of the hydrogen at the end of the process. Is that a wild statement from a mere rural practice surveyor? Is, that, is there an element of truth there? What's your thoughts on that? Again, taking hydrogen to a whole energy systems approach is where we can see some real benefits for hydrogen. So like you say, if you put a certain amount of electrical energy into an electrolyzer to split the water into the hydrogen parts, you will have efficiency losses as, as you move through that process. So if an electrolyzer 
electrolyzer has like a 70% efficiency, you've, you've lost 30% of the energy going into it to start with. But then if we think about the whole systems approach of where hydrogen can be deployed. So at, at the moment we have on the electricity system that there could be curtailed power because we're not physically able to use the, the network to, to move some of that electrical power. And we may need to then turn off wind turbines or renewable generation in areas where we, we've got a surplus of that generation. So by deploying electrolyzers in these strategic locations, what it then allows us to do is to produce hydrogen using energy that otherwise would be wasted and not be able to be used. So we can turn that into a usable long duration storage medium through hydrogen. And then that can be deployed through either power stations that run on hydrogen in the future to top up when the wind isn't actually generating at that point in time, or it can go into the other industrial processes that actually need hydrogen on an enduring basis. So, so as a whole system cost, we actually benefit through using that. We can then use hydrogen to, to extract energy that, that would otherwise not be available and would have to be wasted. Yeah, I think in a world where at the moment we can't control when the wind blows and the sun shines, and it's absolutely true and far better to produce a hydrogen actually than pay wind farmers not to produce. So yeah, I 100% get that. And then finally, just to close this one off, is we've got some pretty tough government deadlines, targets that we're all striving to meet. And, you know, we're talking about 10 gigawatts of carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030, one gigawatt in literally less than two years time. How feasible do you think that is? Yeah, so there's some targets coming up in terms of the numbers that you've spoken about there. And I think there's a lot of activities happening across the whole sector at the moment. So we've got people are terming this the, the decade of delivery in, in the hydrogen sector. So we are actually doing a lot of activities now that will help accelerate meeting those targets in the future, that 2030 10 gigawatt target that you mentioned for hydrogen production. So we're working as across the sector and, and across the whole energy industry to be able to try and try and meet those targets and to really accelerate the work that we're doing. So we're one part of the chain there. There's, there's lots of people involved in this. There's people who want to produce hydrogen. There's people who need to use hydrogen we're able to then move it around as well. So we're all working together to try and land there at the same place. We mentioned earlier sort of blending as a, as a route to really try and kickstart that economy. And that's that's one area that can be stepped in to actually drive some of the pace of that change as well by giving that market, giving that certainty to people that they can actually put their hydrogen somewhere if they do produce it. And then also gives people who want to use hydrogen some certainty that there will be hydrogen available for them to, to consume as well. So we doing a lot of activities like that and some of the activities that National Grid are doing is really going to provide some vital evidence to help support some of the policy decisions that are also going to meet these headline decisions so around the policy for heat and there's lots of areas that we're going to feed evidence in from the activities that we're looking at through Future Grid, through Project Union, through our wider innovation portfolio of work, the work that we're doing around commercial frameworks and regulation. We're all trying to feed this through as, as real good evidence points to help the government make inform policy decisions that help the industry as a whole get towards these targets. And do you believe there does need to be quite a lot of change on? We talk about policy, we could be talking about legislation and processes. Do you think there's still a lot of change to come in that front to really incentivise and facilitate this energy transition? I'm not sure I've necessarily 
change as such, but probably people are, are looking for some clarity and understanding of, of the direction of travel about so they can get that certainty. So in terms of where people want to make an investment, they, they want to make sure they're making it in the context of a, a regulatory and a, and a commercial environment that will actually be beneficial both for them as, a, as an enterprise and as a business, as well as meeting the targets that the government is setting for the country. Well, I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of research already underway. We're already trialing, blending. We've started the direction. The principle is absolutely right in terms of using hydrogen as part of the energy mix, the energy jigsaw out there. And, and the pathway is clearly set. And there's an awful lot of activity that you're obviously involved with. We're obviously involved with in multiple different projects throughout the country. So it seems like the direction is set. Yes, yeah, onwards and upwards. And we've all got a lot of work to do to meet some pretty tough targets. Yeah, that's certainly the case. I think there's lots of lots of work going on at the moment to, to try and meet those targets and to progress the activities that we've got planned for the next few years and, and beyond. Well, Derek, that's been massively insightful. Thanks so much for joining me. And I think it's a real eye-opener in terms of your perspective and National Gas's perspective of the challenges ahead, but absolutely challenges to be embracing. So, yeah, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Andrew.